are inclined to uh, have been inclined to be encouraged in with that uh, picture. But a revolutionary, nevertheless, God's revolution, uh, revolutionary, his mother um, Mary, saw that God was achieving a revolution, lifting up the humble, putting down the proud. She proclaimed that as she celebrated the fact that she was to be the mother of Jesus. And when Jesus was born, remember, it was to humble shepherds on a hillside that God revealed his purpose through his angels to send a saviour, Christ the Lord, mighty Caesar, who ruled the world, was actually just a pawn in God's hands and knew nothing about what he was doing. When Jesus, as an adult, announced his manifesto, remember, it was with revolutionary words. Um, uh, Emily read, read them this morning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, said Jesus, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. To bring, he sent me to proclaim freedom to, for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is revolutionary talk. And when Jesus begins calling his disciples, the nature of that revolution starts to become clear. Do you remember Peter caught that abundant catch of fish? Levi gave, gave a great banquet, as Luke records, uh, records it. There is something lavish, there is something celebratory, there is something wonderfully, overflowingly abundant about this revolution that Jesus is bringing about. But more significantly, we saw um, last week, Peter, when he sees that catch of fish, becomes frightened because, as he says, I am a sinful man. He knows that a sinful person in the face of one so obviously godlike like Jesus is in trouble. Jesus has to reassure him don't be afraid. Or um, when Levi is, uh, is converted, Jesus tells the Pharisees who are looking on and criticising, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. At the heart of Jesus' message is the message of sins forgiven. And we saw last week, we spent some time last week in Luke chapter 6, saying that Jesus makes it plain that uh, those who enjoy this abundance, those who enjoy, most importantly, this, that this forgiveness, must live in the light of it. They must live as people who in turn generously give, even to their enemies. They must live as people who are not judgmental, not condemning, well, this week in, in, in Luke's uh, biography of Jesus, we are going to see Luke pursuing some of the same themes, pursuing them even, even relentlessly through this Gospel. But every time with a slightly new twist. Last week we were answering the question, what does the revolutionary life look like? What does it look like 
uh, uh, what does someone look like who is following Jesus? And we saw the answer, they are people who love their enemies, they are people who don't jump to condemn. This week we're going to see, well, who then can join this revolution? What sort of people are going to become followers of Jesus? Remember as well, we've reminded ourselves every week that Luke um, specifically tells us he is writing to an individual a man whom he calls most excellent Theophilus. We can uh, um, make an educated guess that Theophilus is interested in Christianity but probably not yet a Christian. He's a man who's not a Jew, no family history of worshipping the one true God, a man who is from the upper echelons of society, certainly living in Summertown, not Blackbird Lees. This is a man, in fact, who would be distinctly worried about revolutionary talk. Because revolutionary talk was uh, the sort of thing that was reserved for um, enemies of civil society. But Luke will not spare Theophilus the anxiety. Again and again, he wants to point out to Theophilus, Jesus is a revolutionary. Jesus is bringing good news to the poor, most excellent Theophilus. You must understand that, he says, as we answer the question, who then can be involved in this revolution? Who can follow Jesus? Who are the children of the revolution? Luke's Luke's answer to Theophilus, if Theophilus was starting to get uh, a bit anxious, is encouraging. His answer is, anyone. Chapter 7, for instance, begins with uh, an interaction with someone who's a little bit like Theophilus a rich, respectable Roman centurion. He comes to Jesus because his servant is about to die. But by the end of the story, he is commended by Jesus as having greater faith than the Jews. Rich people with no Christian heritage can join Jesus' revolution. In fact, can be greatest amongst his followers. Or at the beginning of chapter 8, just after... um, Uh, the main section we're going to to look at, we find uh, Luke actually affirming quite specifically the same thing, this time by mentioning the range of people who travelled with Jesus. Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The twelve were with him, the, 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 the disciples who get most mentioned, but also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. There were twelve disciples, but also a whole bunch of women, says Luke. That was truly revolutionary in Luke's day. Women didn't get involved in ministries like this. Least of all, travelling with him. But here is Jesus overturning all the old, rigid, patriarchal views that men are the only people who really matter, and uh, pointing out 
But here are women alongside Jesus. Women supporting him financially, says Luke. And interestingly, not just poor women. Luke is not just focused on that dimension of Jesus' ministry. Well, there is Mary Magdalene, clearly a marginalised woman since uh, uh, Luke records she had seven demons and that must have made her a very suspicious character. But there is also this woman, Joanna, from Herod's household and lots of others, rich, poor, part of the inside of society, part of the outside, anyone. Well, is there nothing then that bars people from following Jesus? Was um, his uh, proclamation of his focused manifesto um, just so much hot air then? Well, now Luke is going to tell us that there is something that bars people from following Jesus. There is something that cuts them off from knowing Jesus. But it's not so much a barrier that he puts in the way, though in some sense he does. It is much more a barrier that we create ourselves in our own hearts. And that's what we're going to look at um, mainly this morning. Who can follow Jesus? Says Luke, well... Actually, only forgiven sinners who exercise faith. They may be rich, they may be poor, they may be seen as acceptable by society as a whole, they may be totally marginalised. But every one of them must come to Jesus as a forgiven sinner who exercises faith. We've seen it before. And we're going to see it again. But this morning, we're going to dwell on it a little bit more. Luke portrays, in uh, at the end of chapter 7, Jesus at the table of this important, respected, religious man. Surprising as it may seem to us at such meals, they were relatively public occasions. So it's, it was relatively easy that this woman... Um, entered the room, this woman whom Luke tells us had led a sinful life. And Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code will confidently tell you this is Mary Magdalene, who we, meet, we met uh, at the beginning of chapter 8, um, but uh, Luke gives no indication that it's the same woman. And uh, Dan Brown, more than that, will tell us that since she kissed Jesus' feet, this must have been a prelude to a sexual relationship And it must be that a devious early church has uh, airbrushed out all of uh, um, this aspect of of Jesus' life Um, because those were innocent days before the tabloid newspapers had told us that um, uh, people like Tory MPs do all sorts of things with one another's feet and they're very erogenous. So, um, uh, since they didn't understand that, they of course left in the fact that this woman kisses Jesus' feet, not realising how illuminating it was. We live with a whole load of rubbish from people, don't we? The central thing about this woman 
according to Luke, is nothing to do with any sexual attraction that there may have been between Jesus and her. Though since uh, Jesus is affirmed very strongly in the Bible as a, a normal man who was tempted in every way, we don't need to be too anxious at, uh, uh, at thinking that there may have been some issues to deal with there, but Luke's not interested in that. Not remotely. Because he's interested in something far more important. Far more important. The central thing for Luke is that this woman is forgiven. That's why she kisses him, you see. That's what Jesus points to. Do you see in verse 48? Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And, and frankly, to Dan Brown and most of our modern society's consternation, the crowd even recognises that this is the most important thing about this interaction. This is the thing that really causes a stir. Not that there might be some sexual scandal uh, um, uh, showing itself. They don't debate the sexual chemistry between uh, these two women. They debate what Jesus has said to her. Verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And we, we, you see, today just, just don't see how central that is for our wholeness as human beings. We think our central need is, is surely about our circumstances. Perhaps we need a better job or more money or the, uh, the, the, the uh, popularity of the Da Vinci Code suggests perhaps even more sexual fulfilment, more relationship satisfaction. Surely that must be uh, the key thing. Sometimes we get, we get below that and we, we realise that our behaviour needs to change. We see how badly we treat other people. We know we need to behave better. We, 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 we become embarrassed in our own hearts at how we behave. Sometimes we go even, even deeper than that and we realise that actually there are issues underlying our behaviour in our mind and our heart that leads to unhealthy attitudes, low self-esteem, depressive thought patterns or obsessive narcissism which in turn leads to that bad behaviour that we feel bad, bad about. And so the last generation has seen a great multiplication of counselling and, and therapy aimed at giving us mental and emotional wholeness. But the Bible says there is something deeper than that deeper than our circumstances, deeper than our behaviour, deeper than actually just the mechanics of what's going on in our hearts. There is a deeper need that we have, far more fundamental, far more profound, that if that is not sorted out, then none of the rest of those things will be really resolved. We need to find a new status before God. We need to be forgiven.
and there are many, many people in this world for whom that is, that is for them a complete irrelevance. Why should I need to worry about being forgiven by God? But examine their lives. And you will start to see that actually there is, a, there is an emptiness, a hole there, which nothing else can fill. The um, media personality of a previous generation and, and prominent atheist, Margarita Lasky, whom a few of us might remember being on the, on the radio, said shortly before her death, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. No, it's not an irrelevance, you see. And those who know their hearts most feel that. Many, many more people today don't so much treat it as uh, an irrelevance, as something that, that is just taken as read, of course God will forgive me. That's his job, said uh, Catherine the Great in the 18th century and millions of people since, since then. God is surely someone who just, who just uh, forgives everybody, isn't he? But the Bible makes it plain that, is, that forgiveness is not automatic. But actually, unless something happens in our lives, we stand before God as people who will have to pay the price for all of those things that we have done wrong. And that is a terrible, horrendous thought. And my observation is that, frankly, instinctively, many, many people know that. for all their uh, rhetoric of, of course, God will forgive me, they, in their heart of hearts, know they are unforgiven. The most important thing that Jesus offers and the deepest thing that any of us needs is God's forgiveness. At root, you see, we need to know that the weaknesses, the failures, the inadequacies and the sheer mess that is our lives will not in the end define us. It may cause us damage now. It may, it, it may cause us tears now. But in the end, it will not define our life. God has pronounced forgiveness on all of that mess, on all of that rubbish. And one day that forgiveness will be complete. One day in eternity we will be people who can look at God face to face. One day all of that, that stuff will be history. God himself will have said, Jesus Christ died for your sins. And so our sin does not define our future. And actually we need to know as well that our sin does not ultimately separate us from the most important relationship that any of us has. A relationship with the person 
who created the universe. God Almighty. We need to know, as the Apostle says, that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And if we do not have that assurance, then whatever success we have at changing our circumstances, whatever success we have at modifying our behaviour, whatever success we may have at, 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 at dealing with some of the issues in our hearts, underneath there will be a vacuum, there will be a terrible darkness, there will be a lostness, because we have no assurance that actually those weaknesses in our hearts that we see will not finally define and determine our eternal destiny. And we have no assurance that we will not actually, through our own failures, damage relationship after relationship after relationship so that in the end we are utterly and terribly alone. If we do not have that assurance, then we do not have the beginnings of wholeness. The beginnings of life. The beginnings of happiness. What... uh, what, what, what the Christian message does, what the Gospel does for us, is it strips away and strips away and strips away till we see that void. And then it invites us to come. To come simply asking God for forgiveness. And that core issue then is put right. And a life can start to be built afresh. More than that, we need to see really, really clearly that the way for us to be forgiven, the way for that core issue of our lives to be sorted is not actually by, by, by putting ourselves right. How many stories are there in today's world of people who've made a mess and then they set about diligently, purposefully sort of putting their life together again? The sort of indomitable hero. There is no ultimate assurance for that person that they will not make a mess again. That the mess they've already made will not actually envelop them. What the Christian Gospel says is all we can do is come to God in faith. Faith has two dimensions to it. Part of it is about believing the truth believing that God really is the compassionate and merciful God who he says he is. And then the other dimension to it is about trusting that. Not just believing and walking away, not just just saying as so many people, oh yes, I believe in a God of love, but actually saying, I entrust my life to this because I see it as the most precious thing, the most important thing, the, 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 the thing that I want more than anything else. That is Christian faith. And this woman has it. 
lest we should be confused and think that somehow her, um, her almost manic actions that we're going to look at in a moment somehow earned her forgiveness, Jesus says in verse 50 very clearly what's happened. Your faith has saved you, he says. Go in peace. Your confidence that God is a God who forgives you as you come to him has saved you. Your willingness to entrust yourself to this God has saved you. Who can belong to Jesus then? Anyone. Rich or poor. Respectable or disreputable. With a religious heritage that goes back for 2,000 years or with nothing. One thing they all have in common. They are people who recognise that their core need is to be forgiven by God. And people who come to God and say, please, I bring nothing. Please forgive me. But then this uh, story, the main part almost of this, uh, of this story, on that foundation is uh, what we need to think about for ourselves just for a few minutes. Some will look at that and just not be bothered. Simon the Pharisee in this story functions in uh, uh, exactly that way. He uh, honours Jesus in one sense He is the one, in verse 36, who invites Jesus to dinner. But he does the mere minimum to maintain courtesy to to Jesus. Um, Scholars argue about whether he was actually actively discourteous to Jesus. And it may be that he wasn't, but he certainly didn't do more than was necessary. He didn't give Jesus water to wash his feet, a normal thing. to to give for someone who had travelled and uh, got the dust of the road on them. He didn't greet him with the customary honorific kiss. He didn't offer him the customary um, bottle of deodorant that you gave to uh, sweaty travellers. Scented oil. Simon's clearly not impressed with Jesus. He's even less impressed when... uh, Uh, This rather dodgy woman uh, uh, is throwing herself all over him. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So it is that Jesus tells him this story. Simon, I have something to tell you, he says. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, about a month's wages, and the other 50 50 denarii a month's wages. 500 is uh, ten times that. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. 
So he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. That's the point. Simon's got it. The one who has the bigger debt cancelled will surely love more. Simon is definitely behaving like a person who owes very, very little. Not very impressed by God's offer of forgiveness for his debt. Frankly, he thinks that he is so wonderful that God more or less owes him forgiveness. Such people always love Jesus very little. And such people are always around. And you know, a lot of them go to church. They're not, a, not you see, the out and out rejectors. They're not, they're not the ones who would spit at Jesus as soon as look at him. They are people who up to a point honour him. And very, very often they are sticklers for good doctrine. Because part of their uh, um, uh, self-manufactured little world that they have built around themselves that tries to convince them that... uh, uh, that God owes them something is to make sure that they've got their Bible straight, to make sure they've got their Bible right. And so they're very attracted to evangelical churches. And they are just the people, Jesus says, are likely to have very little interest in him, really. I I see it all the time, I have to say. All the time. In fact, I think it might be the root of so many people's half-heartedness towards God. I just don't think God has given them much. They are focused on their circumstances. You know, God hasn't sorted out me uh, with a good job or with a a good life partner or or whatever. They are are perhaps um, uh, uh, focused on dealing with their sins and they have a degree of success and they start to pat themselves on their back, on on the back. They're perhaps not very aware of any uh, particularly deep emotional problems and what emotional problems they have. Well, they blame God, it's not fair. They just don't see that the central thing the most important thing that God has done for them is he's bought their forgiveness. And let's not minimise the cost. The cost was the death of Jesus Christ. Ah yeah, that's because there were so many people and some of them were pretty awful, weren't they? So Jesus had to die... Um, frankly, you know, if, if, if it was just me that God was, uh, was working on, then a little prick of the finger or whatever, and uh, that'd be enough. That's not true, is it? 
the Bible says actually there is not a single person who has ever lived who has not deserved death at God's hands. Who has not deserved to be separated from God forever. Not a single person who ever lived who didn't need God the Son to die. Who didn't need God the Son to be separated from God the Father so that he cried out, why have you deserted me? Because of our sin. And you see, I think, to be absolutely honest, at the root of so many of our problems is we have not seen how great that is. We are uncomfortably like Simon the Pharisee. Not our cap to Jesus. But we don't profoundly worship him. See, there are others as Luke points out, who uh, are simply transformed by this message of forgiveness. This woman, just just imagine her. She um, is deeply doubtful as to whether she has any right to be in this Pharisee's house. But she has heard that Jesus forgives sins, that Jesus takes this prerogative of God on himself and forgives sins. And so she, she, she picks up the alabaster jar of perfume that has lain in that bottom drawer for, for years, the only valuable thing that she has, and she's hung on to it and she takes it to that house. She sneaks in uh, to that house and uh, uh, she, she goes up, says Luke, behind Jesus. Yes, yeah, she's, she's cautious. Before she can do what she intends with that, uh, that jar, she just begins to weep uncontrollably because it is overwhelming for her that God should forgive her sins, that Jesus should bring that forgiveness to her. She weeps so much that she soaks Jesus' feet as he reclines there. She hasn't got a cloth. What's she going to do? She can only use her hair to wipe his feet dry and clean. And then she's so overwhelmed with love for him she kisses those feet. Then she remembers her perfume. But she hasn't got the courage to, to stand up above the level of the table to have the, the tough gaze of Simon the Pharisee who's sitting there at the head of the table fall on her. She just hasn't got the courage. So where she is, crouching down, she snaps off the, 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 the neck of the bottle and, well, she can only reach his feet, so she pours it on his feet. 
The contrast couldn't be more stark and Jesus brings it out with brutal uh, uh, incisiveness. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Do you see what what Luke is saying? Do you see what he's saying to God-fearing Theophilus? The most excellent one that he's writing to. Theophilus, you can be a follower of Jesus, but you're not going to be found at the head of the table with everyone respecting you. Most of Jesus' followers, frankly, are at his feet weeping. Where are you going to be, Theophilus? Do you see what Luke's saying to us? We cannot come to Jesus as anything other than forgiven sinners. I know some of us here have heard that a hundred, a thousand and more times. But it must penetrate our hearts. We must see the cost. We must see the enormity of the love of God that achieved that for us. We must see that that is the most important thing that could ever happen to us. That has defined our new identity. And everything else, frankly, falls away into the shadows compared with that glorious truth. And then we will find from the bottom of our hearts real love, real delight, real joy, real pleasure, real worship just bubbling up. And we as a church must know that profoundly as we live together, as we encourage one another. We are all forgiven sinners. That is the glory of what it means to be a Christian. If ever we begin to yawn when we hear the message that God forgives sin, then we are in deep trouble. As the years have gone by in my life, that has just become clearer and clearer to me. When we're young, we naively think we're good. And that we, uh, on our own, can make a good fist of being a Christian. But life teaches otherwise. And we must know we are forgiven. That is the root of all true Christian love.